You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Spirits. Visit StarTrekSpirits.com today for the all-new Romulan Vodka and Romulan Rye. Take 10% off your order with special code Roddenberry at StarTrekSpirits.com. This episode is also sponsored by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 484, Futures End, parts 1 and 2. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we, in the present, look at an episode of Star Trek from the past to see if there are messages for today that can propel us into the future. This week, Future's End, Part 1 and 2. The one where Voyager gets a visit from the future, which hurdles them into the past so they can save the present, which is actually our future. It's... It's complicated. And we'll unravel all the timey-wimey stuff in a moment as soon as I tell all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. We'll have John's trivia in just a moment, but first a word from one of our sponsors this week, and that is you. Me? Yeah. Well, you. You. And you. you, All of you. Yes. (laughs) Us. We. uh, Us. All of us (laughs) together collectively. It is all of us who have met on Patreon and by extension the Mission Log Discord, which has really become the heart and soul of the Mission Log Patreon community. And here's how it all works. You can go to patreon.com slash mission log, choose the support tier that fits you, and then there are all kinds of benefits that come along with that. There are early access to episodes of Mission Log, including our uh, pre-show banter, all of our mistakes, which are uh, very enjoyable, I think, (laughs) (laughs) at least in retrospect. And then there is special swag like stickers and t-shirts and coffee mugs exclusive to our Patreon audience. But then, then you get the key, you get the magic link that takes you to Discord. And at Discord, well, what can they find, Norman? Well, I mean, aside from I haven't really counted how many subchannels that we have now, but a variety of subchannels that range from all of what we talk about on Mission Log to all the Star Trek series, new and old, to movies, to food, to food, to no, that's not. I'm not stuck on it. I'm not repeating. We yeah. post a lot about food, but also all of the fandoms that make our diverse Discord group as special as it can be. It's just really nice to get away from the noise of other social media platforms where we have this thriving, thoughtful, supportive community, and we get to have the deep discussion about these topics and the fun stuff, too. So you get to continue the discussion there at Discord by joining our Patreon. Shout out to some of the more recent people who have joined us there. Kigar, Kyung, Ryan, Richard, Kevin, Wendell. Other Richard, Graham, just a few of the names of people who have joined us recently at patreon.com slash mission log. We hope to see you there. And when you join us, remember, you will get that link to the mission log discord. And now here's John Champion with this week's trivia. 
All right. We have two episodes written by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski. Well, you definitely want two strong writers taking on an ambitious piece, and it was Brandon's hope very early on to experiment with multi-part episodes. In fact, he had conceived of this story as a four-part show, then whittled it down to three parts, and finally studio pressure got him to reduce it down to two. He and Joe did the lion's share of the work, but as always, they graciously point out that there are many hands that go into devising a story for TV. Jerry Taylor and Rick Berman were two who had a strong influence on the script in this case, but the whole staff had their hands in it too. Part one was directed by David Livingston and then part two directed by Cliff Bull. Not a surprise here to have two veteran directors. Maybe the only surprise was for Cliff Bull, who was inheriting this story from David, and therefore he had some of the stylistic and casting choices already made for him. And let's talk about how much I love location shooting, especially for Star Trek. There is great use of the Santa Monica Pier right at the bottom near Ocean Avenue, made here as well as the L.A. Music Center, specifically near the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, and the world-famous Griffith Observatory in the Hollywood Hills. I need to look up a call sheet, though, for the scenes in the van, because they could have been really anywhere at night, West Hollywood, Ventura Boulevard. Santa Monica Boulevard, maybe that's likely if they were already shooting a lot in Santa Monica. Then for part two, we go out to the Mojave Desert, and there's this other shot in part two that I swear they drive right by Raleigh Studios, which literally, like, if you had a camera facing the main gate at Paramount on Melrose and just turned it around, <laughs> that's where Raleigh Studios building is. A lot of those other driving scenes uh, very near Paramount, Larchmont Village, Hancock Park, all of that area. So if you've been there, you definitely would recognize some of those places. This episode was Emmy-nominated for Part 1 for Sound Mixing. And uh, let's meet our guest stars. Now, in Part 2, we meet a couple of locals in a house in Arizona. They are played by Brent Hinckley and Clayton Murray. Brent has played his share of tough guys. And in fact, he played an actor playing a cop in one of my favorites, Ed Wood. Clayton's work on screen is only in the 90s uh, with this Voyager episode, as well as a handful of guest spots and horror features like Amityville Dollhouse. For both actors, this is their only Star Trek appearance. Commander Braxton from the future that is played by Alan G. Royal. He is Canadian and thus got his start on Canadian TV, including a breakout role on Night Heat, which served also to kickstart his career on American TV and film. He has turned up in JAG, The Firm, and even portrayed John Scully in the TV movie Pirates of Silicon Valley. So maybe he knows if Steve Jobs or Bill Gates ever stole future technology. Dunbar is played by Christian R. Conrad. We've met Christian once before in the DS9 episode, The Darkness and the Light, in which he played a Bajoran, Brilgar, also a security officer. Christian will be back for an appearance on Voyager again. Sarah Silverman plays Rain Robinson, and by now, Sarah is very well known as an actor and comedian. In addition to the multiple stand-up specials and starring vehicles like the Sarah Silverman program, she appeared early in her career in the 1993 season of Saturday Night Live. She is absolutely a star in her own right. But then, and now, she says that she was overwhelmed from the amount of recognition she got for just being on a couple of episodes of Star Trek. 
And finally, as Henry Starling, Ed Begley Jr. And what hasn't Ed Begley Jr. done? He is probably best known for his long run on St. Elsewhere in the 80s as Dr. Ehrlich. Before that, he appeared very early in his career in an episode of My Three Sons. Then later on, 70s staples like The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. He is very well known as an environmental activist, which makes this role as the villain even more of a treat for him and his fans. And he is very adept at comedy, having appeared in Christopher Guest movies and on shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm in recent years. This might be his only Star Trek credit, but he is a big fan of the franchise and was thrilled to be asked. He even said afterward that he would love to come back again. Because this was network TV in the 90s, there are suddenly fewer colorful metaphors in use. You have been warned. Prologue. Earth. The High Sierras. 1967. A lone hippie with a tattoo of a starling bird on his arm is air drumming while listening to his hand radio. Suddenly, he is interrupted by a flash of light, and after the fireball crash lands very near to him, the hippie looks towards the blaze and mutters simply, Far out. Act 1. On Voyager, Tuvok meets with Captain Janeway, who is lamenting her tennis match against the holodeck. But before he continues both his briefing and his unsolicited advice on improving Janeway's overhand serve, a red alert summons them to the bridge. Chakotay reports that a spatial rift has opened. A lone ship emerges and immediately fires on Voyager, but the crew is able to out-tech the attack. Captain Braxton of the Federation timeship Aeon hails Voyager and freely admits his mission to destroy Voyager at this specific moment to prevent a temporal explosion which will destroy Earth's solar system in his time the 29th century. Voyager disables Braxton's ship, which destabilizes the rift and pulls both ships through time. Shortly after, after seeing Earth on the view screen, Harry's astrometric readings indicate that it's 1996. Realizing that Starfleet doesn't exist yet, Voyager and her crew are on their own to find Braxton's ship, which they loosely track to Los Angeles, California. All they need to blend in and find him, according to resident 20th century expert Tom Paris, is nice clothes, a fast car, and lots of money. Act 2. Janeway, Tuvok, Tom, and Chakotay beam down to Santa Monica Pier to start their manhunt. According to Janeway's tricorder, Braxton's subspace signature is somewhere nearby. They split up into two teams to cover more ground, Janeway and Chakotay to search the boardwalk, and Tom and Tuvok to cover the shoreline. Meanwhile, at the Griffith Observatory... Rain, the young woman in charge of the on-site SETI station, is alerted by her computer to contact Henry Starling, a very powerful and influential tech mogul with a tattoo of a Starling bird on his arm. He also funds Rain's SETI lab with the caveat that she is supposed to contact him if a very specific energy reading is detected, which she now has. He convinces her not to report this to NASA, but she decides to broadcast the standard SETI greeting instead, which is picked up by Voyager. Acting Captain Harry Kim, along with Bellana, are however busy with other concerns, like trying to get the transporters back online in case of an emergency with the away teams. Janeway's tricorder readings triangulate on a crazed and tattered homeless man posting the End Is Nigh posters across the boardwalk. She and Chakotay follow him back to his hovel, while Tom and Tuvok have been ordered to locate the source of the SETI transmission. 
And when Janeway finally confronts the homeless man, she finds a 29th century communicator in his coat and realizes that it's Captain Braxton who recognizes her as well. Act 3. Braxton explains that after he was pulled into the rift, he beamed out before his ship crashed in the High Sierras in 1967. A man named Henry Starling, who watched it all happen, found the remains of the timeship, exploited its 29th century technology for his own financial gain, and became the leader of the microcomputer revolution as president and CEO of ChronoWorks Industries, which also made him the most powerful tech mogul in history. Suddenly, the police arrive and arrest Braxton for vagrancy, but not before Janeway and Chakotay make off with a schematic that Braxton showed them how to prevent the timeship from exploding. Braxton warns them that Starling will soon use the timeship which will cause the explosion that destroys Earth's solar system in the 29th century. Back at ChronoWorks, Starling is doing damage control thanks to Rain's SETI message, which was also intercepted by the likes of JPL and Caltech. Starling sends Dunbar, his enforcer, to quiet the situation. Meanwhile, Tom and Tuvok finally make their way to the Griffith Observatory and access Rain's computer, and she walks in on them before they can complete their investigation. Tom, being the hotshot flirt, distracts Rain while Tuvok wipes her computer. And as they leave, she runs them down, demanding to know why they erased her computer's hard drive, only for all three of them to be fired upon by Dunbar and his 29th century phaser, which disintegrates their escape vehicle. Tuvok provides cover fire as they all manage to flee in her bright blue VW bus. Act 4. On Voyager, Neelix and Kess are assisting Harry by monitoring local television broadcasts to see if Voyager's presence has been detected. However, in their research, Neelix and Kess have both fallen prey to the gravitational pull of the televised soap opera, much to Harry's chagrin. Meanwhile, Janeway and Chakotay break into ChronoWorks, and after several awkward attempts to crack Starling's computer password, Janeway interfaces her tricorder and bypasses what she begrudgingly refers to as the technological equivalent of stone knives and bearskins. Elsewhere in Los Angeles, Tom, Tuvok, and Rain are on the run, as Tom tap dances his way around who they are, why they sabotage Rain's computer, and what exactly is the deal with Tuvok's ears. Back in Starling's office, Janeway and Chakotay find a file called Time Ship Security Portal, and shortly after linking Janeway's tricorder to upload Starling's database, they disengage a force field behind them, exposing a massive hangar bay with the time ship hidden inside. Suddenly, the lights pop on, and Starling and a well-armed Dunbar arrive just in time to stop them. Act 5. Starling believes Janeway and Chakotay are there to steal the time ship from him. But Janeway tries to convince Starling of the truth, that shortly after Starling launches the time ship, he will cause the explosion that destroys the solar system in the 29th century. However, their conversation is interrupted by Harry, who is uploading Starling's files. Starling orders Harry to cease all activity or Janeway will be killed otherwise. Janeway doubles down and threatens to destroy ChronoWorks if the time ship isn't turned over to her authority. Starling is impressed, but not convinced, and before Dunbar can use his phaser, Janeway and Chakotay are beamed out in the nick of time, thanks to Harry who ordered Voyager to risk exposure to get the transporters in range to save Janeway and Chakotay. However, Starling's genius immediately discovers and hijacks Voyager's teleporter beam as a two-way data stream to hack into Voyager's computer. Balana is unable to break the hack, and Kess contacts the bridge informing Janeway that the doctor's program is missing. Well, sort of. Starling greets the doctor, who now appears widely befuddled, standing in Starling's office. And the hits just keep on coming, because Harry's decision to order Voyager closer to Earth to use the transporters has now resulted in what Neelix shows Janeway, 
footage of Voyager being shown on the local news. Act 6 The next morning, Tom and Rain are both hard at work. Tom is trying to repair the VW's radio to try and establish contact with either Janeway or Voyager, while Rain constantly probes Tom for the truth. She points out all the telltale signs why she believes Tom and Tuvok are lying to her and why his whole spy mission excuse is an insult to her intelligence. Tom agrees, apologizes, and simply asks her to trust him. Switching subjects, Tom asks Rain why she became an astronomer. She tells him that when she was younger, she saw Saturn's rings through her treehouse telescope and wanted to touch what looked like jewels in a pirate's treasure. Suddenly, Tuvok appears with bags full of hot dogs and burritos as Tom's radio project literally blows up in his face. Tuvok thinks that the radio dish back at the observatory is their best option to contact Voyager. Rain agrees to help, but first, burritos. Act 7. Captain Janeway and her crew are in triage mode after their last encounter with Starling. Chakotay reports that 20% of Voyager's computer core was stolen by Starling's download, including the Doctor's program. And after Harry's analysis of Braxton's schematic, both he and Bolana believe that Starling's genius is no substitute for the piloting skills required to fly the timeship back to the 29th century and keep it from exploding. And Voyager can't risk further exposure to use the transporters to steal the ship because the U.S. Air Force has no doubt been alerted to the reality of Voyager being a UFO. Just then, Tuvok makes contact using Rain's SETI radio frequency. Tuvok believes Rain can help them, especially since she and Tom have bonded on a cross-cultural level. Back at Chronoworks, it appears that Starling is quite the student of holographic technology. The EMH remains obnoxiously defiant until Starling pushes a few keys, causing the EMH to experience excruciating pain. Suddenly, Starling receives a call from Rain, begging him for help in the aftermath of the attack at the observatory. He begrudgingly agrees to meet with her in a tone which she then describes to Tom and Tuvok as suspicious. When Starling's limo reaches Metro Plaza in downtown Los Angeles, the doctor steps out into the bright sunlight, wearing a small device on his arm. Starling is also wielding a mysterious piece of 29th century technology. And while hiding across the plaza, Tom and Tuvok are stunned to see the EMH standing there out in the open as if he were actually real. Act 8. Using their shuttle's deflector shields to mask their visual profile, Chakotay and Bolana are heading towards Earth in order to establish a secure distance for the onboard transporter to lock onto Henry Starling once they are in range. As they are carefully making their way through Earth's atmosphere, Chakotay and Bolana wax philosophical about life on Earth if they were forced to stay in the past. Meanwhile, back at Metro Plaza, Tom contacts Chakotay with an approximation of Starling's coordinates. However, after Rain meets with both the Doctor and Starling in the middle of the plaza, she overplays her hand by trying to convince Starling to follow her to her van. The paranoid Starling insists they all return to his limo, and once there, Rain tries to escape. The Doctor runs interference for her and exchanges blows with Dunbar, knocking him out. After reuniting with Tom and Tuvok, the Doctor explains that the emitter technology has made him footloose and fancy-free. Back on the shuttle, Chakotay is able to lock onto Starling and finally beams him out, but not before he activates the device that he brandished earlier, causing the shuttle's pattern buffers to overload, which also causes cascading failures throughout the systems. Janeway orders Harry to transport the shuttle's pattern buffer stream to Voyager, and once he does, they are able to rematerialize Starling and neutralize his tech. But the shuttle has already been badly compromised, and Chakotay is forced to make a crash landing. Act 9 Chakotay and Bolana come to after the crash and find themselves trapped in an abandoned basement. Shortly after, two white men arrive and are armed with a shotgun. 
Based on their behavior and line of questioning, they seem incredibly paranoid of the United States government, which they refer to as the beast. Back in Los Angeles, Rain is at her wits end trying to piece together how Starling disappeared right in front of her and who Mr. Leisure Suit is and why he can take a punch without a scratch. Before Tom can tap dance around these questions, Janeway makes contact and orders Tuvok to find Chakotay and Bellana, who crash-landed in Arizona. Tuvok then orders Tom back to Chronoworks to continue investigating the timeship. On Voyager, Starling comes to, but without his tricorder, which was confiscated. Janeway demands he release the timeship into her custody, but his hangar is rigged to detonate if anyone tampers with it, which would result in a Los Angeles-sized crater. Starling monologues even further by admitting that he cannibalized the timeship to the point where he now needs more 29th century technology to further cannibalize for future computer revolutions, which would, of course, benefit his shareholders in the present. Janeway assures Starling that Chronoworks stock is about to crash. Meanwhile, in Arizona, Chakotay and Bellana are at odds with their militant jailer, Porter, who is holding them at gunpoint. And as soon as Chakotay believes he is making a breakthrough, several other anti-governmentalists burst in, declaring that the feds are heading their way. They open up a cellar door and begin arming themselves. Act 10. While heading back to Los Angeles, Rain thinks she finally has a handle on who her new friends are, especially Tom, who she describes as somewhat of a sexy howdy-doody, but also the smartest man she's ever met. Meanwhile at Chronoworks, Dunbar sits in the timeship's command chair and activates SATCOM 47, a satellite which upon activation is commanded by Dunbar to do a security sweep. And just as Janeway is being updated on Tuvok's rescue mission, Harry breaks through and tells her that Starling has escaped and is now back in the Chronoworks building, where, after feverishly typing on his keyboard, has informed Dunbar that it's time to leave. Tom and Rain arrive at the Chronoworks building and before their goodbye could get any more awkward, Tom sees Dunbar driving away in a giant truck and lets slip to Rain that they are moving a timeship and he still needs her help. Back in Arizona, the compound is under siege by what Porter describes as those with lasers, a black man, and a bald guy. The doctor appears and is immediately fired upon, but as a hologram, he remains unharmed. However, the doctor's phaser works just fine as he stuns the militants and frees Chakotay and Bellana, dismissing his heroics as being a simple house call. Meanwhile, Tom and Rain are in hot pursuit of Dunbar. Tom contacts Voyager, and Janeway tells him that there's an airfield nearby. Dunbar and Tom exchange phaser fire, and before Dunbar can ram Rain's stalled VW, he and the trailer are destroyed by Chakotay's shuttle phasers. However, Bellana remarks that the time ship wasn't on the truck. This was all a diversion so that Starling could launch from a different site, which he does as the time ship blasts forth from atop the Chronoworks building. Act 11. Harry is tracking the time ship, but Voyager's weapons are still offline. Photon torpedoes are armed, but the launch sequencers are also offline, meaning someone will have to manually launch the torpedoes and risk being exposed to the torpedo's dangerous plasma exhaust inside the launch tube. And that someone is Janeway, who heads to Torpedo Bay 1, leaving Harry in command. Back on Earth, Tom shares a touching goodbye with Rain as Bellana gets the shuttle's transporters back online. And just as the Voyager crew returns, Starling engages his timeship's temporal inversion field and is preparing to make the jump into the 29th century. The captain is at the controls of the photon torpedo launcher as she orders Voyager to pursue. It is now or never as Janeway activates the photon launchers and Chakotay orders Tuvok to fire. Starling and the timeship are destroyed, and just as soon as they disappear, Captain Braxton of the Temporal Integrity Commission appears almost immediately after 
and has ordered Chakotay to return Voyager to their time and exactly when they left the Delta Quadrant. He also informs Janeway, who requested if they could remain in the Alpha Quadrant, that any deviation from his orders is prohibited by the Temporal Prime Directive. And thus, Voyager is returned to her own time. The crew is returned to life as they knew it in the Delta Quadrant, save one crew member, the Doctor, whose 29th century emitter has granted him a new life aboard the ship, whether or not the crew is ready for a Doctor who can now boldly go anywhere he wants. The end. Hey, nicely done, Norman. And and one thing that I wanted to ask you, even before we get into it, uh, because I just thought about this when I was listening to your recap, did you ever do SETI at home? I have not. Do you remember that? No. Okay. No. I, I, I don't think it exists anymore, but at the time, like in the early 2000s or ish, I'm, I'm not totally sure on the date, but you could download an application for your computer that basically acted like a screensaver, but it was working in the background and it was crunching little pieces of data from SETI. And the idea was that with all these millions of computers around the world, crunching little pieces of data, that could add up. And then who knows, maybe one person at home on their PC would find, you know, another wow signal, uh, another signal from uh, that you could say, oh, that is artificially produced out of all the information that our radio telescopes are capturing. That sounds like like yeah. SETI BitTorrent. It kind of is. Right? <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I thought about that when I saw the computers in this, and they actually mentioned they name checked uh, SETI. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, but that's not all that th- this is about. Let's get into it. Let's uh, look at this uh, bit by bit and see what we picked mm-hmm. up. I do have to say, you know, I'm sure that we'll talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the special effects in this episode as we go along. I got to say, in that very opening scene, if that were produced now, I'm sure they'd use CT to like <laughs> de age Ed Begley and make him look like I, I think he's supposed to be about 20 there don't you think that's fair yeah 67 plus 30 so he'd be in his 50s so yeah well, well not not quite because it, it lands in it, that takes place in 69 this is in 1996 so the magic number is that he is 47 years old when this story takes stop place. I just did that stop. I just did that in my head oh my god I'm sorry I apologize to you and all the listeners. Oh, yeah. that's science, baby. That's science. Um, <laughs> that is. <laughs> I mean, I love that, and I think that you know, it's, it's sometimes it's uh, it's a you know uh, Russian roulette a little bit with the, with the effects you know in this era. Oh yeah. But yeah. the thing that really got me the most in that uh-huh. scene, the flare was so bright, the like the the set lighting was so bright that the rock wall yeah. that Starling was like standing next to. Looked so fake. I'm sorry. It looked awful. It like looked worse than TOS era rock fake. It did. You know, for all the location shooting they did, you you would hope that that would be one that they could just squeeze yeah. and make that a, a location shot mm-hmm. too. But look, as soon as then we get back to Voyager, we're in our familiar territory on board uh, this beautiful ship. And what is the captain holding in her hand? She's got a space racket. Space. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. It's a space racket. It's a racket from space, and she's got one. <laughs> just right here at the beginning, I, I have to parse this. I have to figure it out and, and go with me here, see if I'm right. Okay, if I understand it correctly, part of Braxton's job is to go back in time and kill people on a Starfleet vessel. Yeah. Right? Okay. Okay. Got it. Because he just comes through and he just starts out by charging weapons and firing. Mm. Boom. I, which you would think 
he should know better that they're going to fight back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, he's like, stop shooting at me. I'm here to do my job. Okay, well, your job is just to come back and kill people. And and by the way, even if that were the case, uh, that Voyager caused the destruction, which we learned later it did not, it wasn't the instigator of that, um, wouldn't that just be the natural order of things? Yeah, here's where the headaches begin. So, <laughs> okay, all right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're welcome. Yeah, so it's <laughs> yeah. this whole paradoxing, like there's, in a you know, you have to find like where the ribbon starts and when the ribbon ends, right? So, or if it's just mm-hmm. an Ouroboros and it just keeps going round and round and round, mm. because if Bracton says what he's there to do. He already knows what they're going to do to try and stop him, which means that he has the stuff to be able to stop what they're stopping and so on and so forth. So it keeps going, you know, right. like it's like, like in, in Bill and yeah. Ted's, which is like one of the best time travel movies like ever made, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey or Excellent Adventure. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're talking about like, how are they going to bust out of jail? Well, if I went back in time, I would like leave keys for us right here. And they pull out a set of keys <laughs> because they've already done the paradox. Right. So, yes. yeah, um, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to do the uh, yeah. paradox study anymore. It's just so headache and cringing and inducing. And that's what Janeway said. Like, oh my god, time travel. I, I would also say if you're into that thing, go look up Doctor Who and the Curse of the Fatal Death uh-huh. because they play with that a lot. Yeah. It was like, well, if you were standing here, then I went back in time yeah. a minute before you got here, and I set this trap door, and it, it's it's great. Yeah. yeah, I do have to say that in this episode, the '90s clothes are great, mm-hmm. uh, but to Tuvok's point, they absolutely could have worn their Starfleet uniforms. Uh, also, uh, Tom says they need money, so did they replicate it? But they should have, or did they just yeah, yeah. not bother? <sighs> Or does, does somebody sell some antique glasses? That's what I was thinking. I don't know. That's what I was thinking. Okay. It would have been it would have been okay. neat if, say, like, I don't know, maybe Chakotay sold one of his medicine bundles because he could always just replicate it in the future. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's supposed yeah. to be antique. <laughs> uh, here's, a, but here's an actual production thing I, I was curious yeah. uh, about. So yeah. I didn't do this the way that they had it done or the way they executed it in the series, in the episode. But they mm-hmm. stop on, on Santa Monica Pier and then they restart yeah. – on Santa Monica Pier. Like, why would, yeah. like, they go, like, so Tom says the thing about money, and then the turbo yep. lift closes, and then they're on Santa Monica Pier. Why not just fade out from the turbo lift and then fade into Santa Monica Pier? I wondered the same thing. That was a really strange choice. Yeah. I don't know if they were just up against a very specific timing mark they had to hit, but there's some flexibility in there. So I, I'm not sure exactly how and why that that worked yeah. out. Now that they're on Santa Monica Pier, uh, Chakotay says to Janeway as they're seeing all the locals pass by uh, and a lot of skin in those scenes. It, he says about one of the women walking about, she does have your legs. All right. So now I, are we, we're back to some familiarity that goes way beyond a professional relationship because dude, yeah, you may be not in uniform, but you're still there in your professional capacity. I think that resolutions is unresolved. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. I like that. I think when they're out of mm-hmm. uniform, this is just who they yeah. are. Okay. So we have our first 47 reference of several in this episode. Yeah. The Hermosa quake mm-hmm. of 2047. So was it an earthquake, John, or did Lex Luthor mm-hmm. actually finally make good on his plans for beachfront property? 
<laughs> nice. You know. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Uh, when we get to the observatory and inside Rain's office, I love these movie posters. And I, I knew know, you would. I knew you uh, would. Yes. I, I, w- I want to know who it was. Was it Doug? Was it uh, Dan Curry? Was it Mike? And I, I, I'm dying to know who created these. Orgy of the Walking mm-hmm. Dead, Vampire Vixens, Mummy Kazi, you're killing me, and then the name <laughs> check of Bride of the Corpse. All of this hilarious because it's just like mashups and riffs on Ed Wood and Universal Monster Pictures, just kind of mixing them up a bit. And then on Rain's desk, you have the Metaluna Mutant. You've got the uh, – did you see the model in the background? Uh, maybe like a Botany Bay style sleeper ship and then yeah and then you pointed out to me the telosian it looks very similar and it's a little it's slightly out of focus but the silhouette's pretty much the same it is absolutely a telosian yeah yeah. I love Rain's computer station. I love her her CRT. It looks very much in period of the nineteen late nineteen nineties. You know, kind of like with your you know your gateway computers. You know, your Dell computers at the time. But yeah, her SETI station that was a little bit more advanced. So is this supposed to be the example of this quote unquote micro computer revolution that Starling started? Oh, interesting. Maybe she's got a little more, a little of a head start. Yeah, you know? but if that's yeah, the case, then why does his computer yeah. in his office look like something you would like throw out tomorrow? <laughs> right? <laughs> it does. It does a little bit. Yeah. yeah. What else he has in his office? So I love that vintage Lionel train on his desk. Yeah. Love, love, love that. Thinking about redressing my own desk now after seeing that. And, and I, I love seeing on Voyager that standard greeting that they get, that they receive oh. from Rain's computer right. that has like the, the iconography from the welcome plaque on Pioneer mm-hmm. that Carl Sagan had a hand in. So cool. So cool. I also love seeing Harry in the command chair. And I know that I said in my, yes. in my recap, I called him yes. acting captain. And I know that his log was different from that, but I, d- I just need to point that out. He looks great. Garrett looks very comfortable, you know, and, yeah. and did great with that, you know, that battlefield commission, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. And after seeing just even in this, I want more of that in the future. So did uh, he. That's for you, Garrett. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I do have to say Chronoworks, it is such a 90s company name and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, I love that. I love how big it is on that. Do you know what building that was? Uh, uh, yes, and I forgot. Uh, transportation building okay. from downtown. I think that's it. Yeah, I know I've seen it before, um, but then you have like the big logo, like the 29th century Starfleet Delta, like splashed yeah. across the top. Well, of and that is something I'll kind of skip ahead a little bit because I, I know that I left a note to myself about how they shot those background plates on four by five cameras. It was very uh, cool uh, because, yeah, you, you kind of had to to get that super high resolution. Then they could go in and do the little CG tweaks on it. But, yeah, yep. yeah, very cool. By the way, Tuvok points out that, yes, they stole a truck. They stole the, They did not borrow the truck. They stole it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then they got it vaporized. So good thing they're going Yeah, that Ram wasn't dodging yeah. anything. Oh, right? Yeah. And uh, uh-huh. I don't know why they didn't do this more. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I don't know because I haven't jumped you know, forward yet. But the Tuvok and Tom show, please make that a thing. Yeah. Right? Yes. That's yes. like the best buddy yeah. cop comedy you can get in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, I love yep. the whole Tom, Tuvok, and Rain in our office dynamic. It felt a lot like Kirk Spock and Dr. Jillian Taylor you know, from Star Trek Four. Yep. She had the pizza. So I was just wondering if she would like offer them and like, <laughs> do you guys like Italian? And then Tuvok, you know, the whole no. 
Yeah, no, yeah. yes, no. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yep. Uh, your curves are all wrong, and what's that thing in your pants? There's a lot of innuendo going on in this episode. There is. Yeah. They don't shy away. No. Yeah, that, that's kind of fun to see, uh, I guess, Brandon and Joe probably flexing their uh, creative innuendo muscles. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I do like when we cut back to Voyager, you have Kess and Neelix watching the Earth transmissions uh, film and TV. Yeah. It reminded me of that stuff. Do you remember the movie Explorers? Yeah. Uh, and the aliens, you know, the kids realize like, oh, my God, the aliens are just watching TV shows. They're getting Earth all wrong, <laughs> you know. I also – this might be a thing that we discuss later or not. Uh, but I like this idea of Kess calling out Harry Kim when he says that he can't imagine watching a story and not being a part of it. Like that's a really cool, really interesting way to talk about our relationship to entertainment yeah. and media. Obviously, movies aren't a totally foreign concept. You know, uh, Tom is a movie fan. Uh, but just to show the difference generationally and and where we are in the future, yeah. thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. uh, also, another cool little detail, that picture of Starling with Nixon. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's the famous Elvis picture exactly. with Nixon. But I love that they pasted him in. That's good great. Photoshop. Well, um, that wouldn't have been Photoshop. Yeah. That would have been would have been standard. It would have been a cut, cut and, and paste. paste. Yeah. yeah, really good job. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I also love the whole thing about how there is no KGB, <laughs> and then Tom, that's what they like you to think. Perfect. <laughs> you got no reply to that. Yeah, it was perfect. It was awesome. I had yeah. I had to laugh out loud when Janeway said about Starling's computer. You know, this is the equivalent of stone knives and bearskins, right? Of that course. comes. From oh, the classic of classics, of you know, City on the Edge of Forever. I was waiting for, like, yeah. uh, Chakotay to, like, to pick up something and say, hello, computer, or how quaint, or something like that. Sure. Just to keep that gag going. Right? Yeah. Or, like, with the microchips. How do you know he's not the guy who invented Exactly. It, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, and, and speaking of that guy, he just knows how to take control of a starship from his 20th century PC but using 29th century tech, that, that's a lot to swallow. Yeah, how does that yeah. happen? I mean, you have a guy who's smart. I'm not, he's not, he's yeah. not unintelligent. He knows what he's doing, but sure. not to the point where he can out-hack a trained Maquis Starfleet officer yeah. from the future. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, that, that, that is a, a bit. In a show that has a lot, to, you know, it's asking a lot of us <laughs> to accept. One of the bigger ones, That yeah. might be one of those. Yeah. Here's a really weird little detail. If you're watching with the uh, closed captioning on like I do, at 44.39 in part one, the voiceover says, the man was using his camcorder during a backyard barbecue. The subtitle says, during a live broadcast of the Dodgers-Giants game. Hmm. So totally different shot. Uh, well, I mean, the, the shot is the same, but totally different description of what's going on mm -hmm. because we do catch a little bit of Dodger Stadium in there. So they, it, it, it's odd that, um, that that's what we hear versus what we see. By the way, there was no game on November 6, <laughs> 1996. Uh, the, the season ended in early October, but this episode was filmed in August. So that's, that's what you got. Production. Yeah. 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 One thing that I'm fully on board with, burritos for breakfast. Love it, Tuva. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, I love it. Good call. call. I also liked, I liked how Tom kind of, you know, sat back, thought about what Rain was saying, and apologized to her for insulting her intelligence. I like that scene. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, very good scene. 
So we, we, we talked how some of the CG, like uh, some of those exteriors, bright sunlight with the building, and then you have the logo slapped on top of it, doesn't exactly look great. I think it's more effective like inside in that lab where they have the time ship. Again, just a photo. I think that was a lab actually in Long Beach. And then that is matted much more convincingly, I think especially because you're looking through a window at that. I do have a question, though. Mm -hmm. How does Starling have a hollow emitter in his office? And then notice that he takes a physical comm badge off the EMH. So his hollow emitters are able to produce him in 3D space and then produce a thing that he can grab. That's That was maybe a step too far. I mean, I, I know this yeah. happens later, but I can reference it now since it's a reference point. Yeah. But it's the same way that a doctor can be shot and the you know, mm. projectiles go through him but still hold on to an actual phaser and fire an yeah. actual beam at people. But yeah. he's corporeal and incorporeal at the same time. Hey, whatever suits the script. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's What is that? Plot armor? That is the, the yeah. power of plot armor. <laughs> it's plot armor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Powerful um, plot That's how armor. the doctor survived that. Yeah. Uh, Timestamp, yeah. this is uh, – okay, so this is in part two. Timestamp, 11 yeah. minutes, five seconds. I'm a doctor, not a database. Yes. Right? Yes. A, uh, a great moment for the doctor. Also another great moment. I love how Picardo steps out of the limo into the sunlight and just feels like it's all bizarre. Like, yeah. what am I yeah. doing here? But I'm here at the same time. I think that's yeah. great. Kind of wonderful. Mm -hmm. Here's a question for uh, the crew of Voyager. You had a transporter in the shuttle the whole time. Why and probably multiple shuttles. Why why weren't they just using those right from the start mm. when Voyager systems are failing? So you know, just thinking that. And by the way, how short is that transporter range from the shuttle? Right. Because they've been flying a long time, like just a couple more minutes. Yeah. Just like what? You're, you're in a shuttle. You're in the atmosphere. I mean, don't you usually beam up from space? Uh, yeah, mm. little again, plot armor. Mm -hmm. Things have to move at the speed of plot. Um, <laughs> and speaking of the transporter, doesn't the transporter chief work in the transporter room? I mean, literally, when they're bring, beaming up Starling from the shuttle. Uh -huh. Uh, from the from the buffer in there, it's Janeway and Kim like pushing everybody else out of the way, and everybody else is just doing nothing. There's even a security guard that's just standing there, barely keeping his eyes on the action. I had a weird note about this that I scrubbed, but okay. it just reminds me of what I wrote. So I wrote that there's there's transporter room one, which is supposed to be a short range emergency transport pad. Yeah, and I guess. That's the reason why you have designations for transporter rooms, but can't they just all be like short, long, right. and like far ranging transporter beam pads all yes. in one room? It really just depends on yes. how you slide the sliders. Uh, right? Yeah. See, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. That's just weird. Yeah. I really love the scene where, where Bellana and Chakotay were talking about, you know, life on Earth. And then when Chakotay, or when Robert said, hey, look out for birds, yeah. I actually think yeah. that that was. I know that there's no improvisation, but it felt like he improvised that line because Roxanne laughed in a non-acting laughing kind of way. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was very, very nice. natural. Who doesn't love the cell phone use, right, in this uh, episode? So good. So good. Could you tell and, which and one it was? Perfect, not really, but I mean, definitely a flip phone, and, and you can tell that connection between Star Trek and reality. Looked like a Star Trek. moment like that. Yeah. yeah so good. Have we heard of this before? A transport of a transport beam or buffer? 
So you're transporting yeah. the data of the data. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. But I but I like it. Yeah. It's just I mean, I yeah. It, it it's weird. It might just have been invented for this. Yeah. But I, I kinda like that it. Plot armor's another thing I like yeah. it is. Another thing that I like, Mr. Leisure Suit. Yeah. I love that mm-hmm. as a name for the doctor. Okay, so here goes another forty seven reference. Uh, this is the second mm-hmm. one that I picked out. So Dunbar says in the timeship he says SATCOM forty seven. Activate. Oh right. Yeah. Yes. Yep, you're right. Yep. yep. Uh, oh, and you mentioned this about the you know, that that firefight in the Arizona house mm-hmm. and the doctor is, you know, getting shot at with the shotguns and he's got the phaser. Mm-hmm. I have to say that it is very satisfying to see that rescue, though. It is. Because he's just so self-possessed because, look, he knows that he's a hologram. He can do cool stuff. He can walk right into a dangerous situation, take control over it. it it's cool, even though we're left with questions about the physics of it all. So what? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you know? I have a point to talk yeah. about later where you can turn off your brain okay. and enjoy an episode. Sure. Up to a point, right? Up sure. to a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, couldn't Starling have built a door in the building where his, you know, very f- maybe fragile, you know, experimental, very rare time ship is instead yeah. of busting yeah. through concrete and steel to launch. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's something to look into for version two of that building. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned uh, a scene earlier with Tom and Rain and his apology and how that was a genuine moment and really played well. I have to say, overall, that whole romantic subplot was handled very well because they didn't go for all the obvious choices. Mm -hmm. And that's really nice to see in a show where sometimes you expect very obvious choices. And I have one question for you, John, and and maybe Mm -hmm. someone out there can also help us with this. But if the doctor is now corporeal Mm -hmm. and drinks real champagne, where does it go? We're going to start another show for that. Fortunately, Voyager arrived too early for Neelix and Kess to be inspired to start production on the Real Housewives of the Delta Quadrant. That was a close one. We'll get right back to the show after a word from another of this week's sponsors, Star Trek Spirits. You know, there is this history of appreciating a good drink that goes along with Star Trek and, well, actually most of science fiction history, too. But I think back to the very beginning of Star Trek, that time that Dr. Boyce made a martini for Captain Pike because, as we all know, the captain will tell his bartender things that he won't tell his doctor. Or mm-hmm. you think about Bones giving that gift of Romulan ale to Kirk and so many points in between and beyond those. So... This very interesting question came to the folks at Star Trek Spirits, which is how do you create a line of premium spirits that are truly worthy of the Star Trek name? And that's what they did. StarTrekSpirits.com have come up with exactly that with their Romulan Ale Vodka and Romulan Ale Rye. Now, you've heard me and Norman talk about this a lot and what big fans we are of their products, especially because those bottles, they are limited edition. They are individually hand-numbered. And it took them years to crack the code on this and come up with the right design that looks authentic to screen and will also look beautiful on your shelf and in your bar. And uh, the best part is they consulted with this world-class spirits team to make sure that what's inside the bottle is as good and is as worthy as that outside packaging. 
I mean, not only that, John, I mean, aside from the incredibly high quality spirits that are in you know, these bottles and these products, the, uh, the team over there at Star Trek Spirits, you know, they worked very closely with the Star Trek prop masters and uh, the team at, over there at the Star Trek library. And they got the original designs from the front artwork application to put on their bottle. It's a gold hot foil stamping, which is protected in the production process. So you can reuse that bottle once your spirits are done. And then As fill you have done. Spirits. I have done. <laughs> yeah. And the the bottle is incredible. It's robust. It's screen accurate. It's something that you can, uh, as a fan, you can have pride as it as it sits there on your shelf and it beckons you for uh, that one drink uh, to relax you at the end of a, a very hard day of, uh, you know, politicking in the Federation. As <laughs> Galaxy Kirk does. hopping. Yeah. Planet exactly. hopping, I should exactly. say. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, not just the bottle itself, but, you know, the, the bottle is also there to to protect the, the angel's entry from escaping, mm-hmm. you know, away uh, as, mm-hmm. as, as loose tops allow. And for the topper, they actually even utilized a futuristic and functional vino seal glass topper, which prevents that angel's envy from escaping the bottle. So whether it's your Romulan ale or your Romulan rye, your Romulan vodka, or whatever you put into the bottle afterwards, it's very well protected in such an elegant package. Yeah, it's so good. So join us all. Uh, we are so thrilled to be teamed up with the folks at StarTrekSpirits.com as we explore this universe together. It's reimagining old classics and producing a line of spirits that has been and truly will be sought out by spirits and Star Trek fans alike. Now, we saw it happen before. We know it'll happen again. They did sell out and they will sell out again. So visit StarTrekSpirits.com today for the all-new Romulan Ale Vodka and Romulan Ale Rye. You, as our listener, can take 10% off your order with the special code Roddenberry at checkout. StarTrekSpirits.com. Use our code Roddenberry at checkout to take 10% off your order. So, Norman, this is an episode that has a lot of fun delivered mm-hmm. up with uh, with whatever messages, morals, meanings we may find at the end of this process. But one of the things that I think is interesting to pick apart here is that whenever Star Trek does a time travel episode like this, and it doesn't always have to specifically be time travel, but you want to put our characters up against somebody who is super relatable. So... If we think about this, you know, we get to side with the characters that are our entry point into that world. And if we're just watching what happens on Voyager in the Delta Quadrant in the far future, we as the audience look at those characters as our heroes. Yeah. But then they are terribly out of place in 1996 they are not nearly as cool as one would think as you think they are from week to week when they are in their protected environment right and it's kind of as i was watching it i kept thinking it's almost this meta thing like if you've ever felt uncool as a star trek fan well, so are the people on Star Trek, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because suddenly yeah. now they are uncool because they, like us, have to exist in the contemporary world. You know, things aren't just sort of perfect for them. They're, they, they don't have the right answer for everything. And I felt like that's another way to identify with these characters, like take them down off the pedestal for a second and sure. let them uh, let them be among us, you know. But I think that also there's this other level, surely there's this other level, 
where we as the audience are now supposed to identify with the people from 1996. And what's interesting about that is that most of the people we encounter in 1996 are terrible, mm-hmm. except for Rain. Yeah. She she is the one who the audience should most identify with, should sympathize with, and want to be like in many respects. And I'll, I'll kind of come back to that in the wrap-up. But it's not a very pretty picture of people in 1996. It's an interesting dichotomy they had between Rain and Starling. Because Starling, he started off... And I'm making a huge assumption here because all we really got from Starling in the teaser was, you know, very little information. But yeah. I'm assuming that, you know, he's out there. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the man, right? Yep. You know, he's he's a hippie out there, you know, in the high Sierras, getting his groove on, mm-hmm. relaxing, separating himself from society and all of society's pressures. And all of a sudden, he gets this opportunity and he could choose either to become – to either do good with what he has found or become the man which he has fought. And yeah. that's a really interesting dichotomy. I'm going to get into that later on, you know, in the wrap up, you know, yeah. in uh, morals, meanings and messages. But it's it's interesting, like how power and greed are associated with one type of character who is pushing future technology and the way that humanity is supposed to be moving forward, i.e. what we believe Star Trek is. Yeah. But then you also have this underdog with Rain, who believes that after seeing Saturn once through a telescope. Yeah. That's her passion now in order to in order to to achieve the ability to reach the stars. And almost in a way both of their kind of like their soliloquies in in this overall story they they kind of reinforce some of the things the perils about be careful what you wish for versus mm-hmm. The dream of going to the stars that many of us Star Trek fans have, you know, and to achieve this better humanity. So it's nice seeing that played out here. I just think that maybe it's played out a little too thinly. Okay, maybe so. We can come back to that judgment, certainly. I'm going to go back to something that you said a moment ago, though, and I wonder Mm -hmm. if, you know, I'm just kind of putting myself in the writer's room in 1996. Is this a little bit of an indictment of people like Starling, who in their 20s in the 1960s, young, idealistic, wanted to make the world a better place. Or even if young Starling didn't want to make the world a better place, he at least didn't want to make it worse. He wanted to be out in nature listening to his radio, starting a you know little campfire and just sort of being at one with the world that way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you fast forward 27 years and it's – it's not that hard for us as an audience to go, you know, there are probably a lot of people like that. There are probably a lot of people who somewhere along the road lost their idealism, lost the passions maybe that drove their ethics and, and drove their wants for their lives and got distracted by the shiny promise of the thing that would give them wealth and power and could not get back to that place that they were in their hearts before. Well, I mean, you know, like what I, I had this as a note and I kind of scrubbed it in observations, but I want to return to it because it really did stick out like a sore thumb to me. And it's when Tom said, all you need to do to get around in this time in this timeline is to have, you know, a lot of money, fancy yeah. clothes and a fast car. 
And that's that's a description of what Tom thinks about the 20th century. But it's almost in a way an indictment mm-hmm. of kind of like the status quo of like that the 1990s. And it's kind of springboarding off of, you know, the Gordon Gecko Greed is Good 1987 yep. movie, you know, from, from Oliver Stone, yep. which is only 10 years, you know, a, there's a 10-year gap. But I think that the dynamic is the same. Like, you know, if you want to get around in L.A., you know— you got to, you know, you have to have that look, you know, you got to flash the cash, you got to flash the car and you got to flash the duds, right? And you're good. And I think that somewhere along the line, and this is where I really wanted to see this happen. I really wanted mm-hmm. to see somewhere in the past, some kind of scene talking about why Starling lost his way. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe he was like, you know what? If I found it, maybe he like, uh, maybe mm-hmm. a vow to himself out there in the high Sierras. Maybe this was his genie's wish where, you know what? Uh, when I wish upon a star and the star actually fell that if I got the, ch- if I got the power, if I got the money, I'm going to change the world. Yeah. Right. But how, right? right. How are you going to do it? And with what intent? And maybe right. the intent started off right, but maybe, and I'm going to put on my writer's hat for a second, John. <laughs> I got, okay. It looks good on you. Go ahead. You, you, you need yeah. to have a point in the, in this journey, in this character journey where he diverges off of his path. And this is where I think they lost a huge opportunity of mm. why Dunbar is in Starling's life. Ooh, interesting. Interesting. And by the way, everything that you're saying, I, I sort of now want to see maybe you know hey brandon if you're listening (laughs) you know i i want to see that four episode treatment for this because maybe those are the scenes that are missing here just imagine this so Mm -hmm. starling 1967 comes out of the high sierras hides this thing in his garage or wherever or maybe dunbar's a buddy of his that he knew yeah and they look at this thing like well what are we going to do with this and it's just kind of like jobs and was right you know back when they started apple they're going to like create this technology and it starts selling yeah. Even in the smallest ways, like calculators, watches, whatever. And mm-hmm. they start making some money. And Dunbar's like, if we push this hard enough, we could make some serious money. Right? Yeah. We could make some serious, serious wealth. And they did. Yeah. And that's why Dunbar is so hell-bent on protecting, you know, Starling. Uh-huh. He's the man. Uh-huh. He's the face. Uh-huh. Yeah. But Dunbar is actually the guy who knows how to get the dirty work done. Oh, that's I don't Because I don't think Starling yeah. has the guts to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. All right. Well, let's take this train of thought here for a moment. Writer's hat off. uh, Okay, writer's (laughs) hat off. Because this whole thing about the premise uh, of him finding this crash ship, and, uh, you know, again, that's the high concept thing that you have to swallow about this episode. And if I'm maybe taking this episode more seriously than I should, I have to think back to all the times on Mission Log that I have expressed my sincere displeasure with episodes that try to rewrite human history and rewrite human innovation. I mean, it might be like a chariots of the gods kind of thing, or, oh, I don't know, very recently rewriting Native American history. I think it really takes something away from that Star Trek story about human beings working hard and being smart and innovative and being able to overcome the obstacles in front of them instead of it being handed to them by divine or in this case alien (laughs) future technology 
But we have a taste of that again here in this episode. And computer history didn't start in 1969. Thank Cer- you. Yeah, it certainly <laughs> didn't start in the 1980s. Uh, uh, Bardeen and uh, Bretagne, who were uh, pioneers of the transistor. How about Alan Turing? You know, uh, certainly a name that has come up on Mission Log before. But here we are for dramatic purposes. We're in the Star Trek universe and we need a bad guy. And of course, there's the the paradox of, well, that stuff doesn't exist in the future unless you have the progression of a computer revolution in the 20th century to get you to that point in the 29th century, mm-hmm. much less all the stuff in between. So if that wasn't supposed to be there, if that computer revolution wasn't supposed to be there, what indeed would take its place? Does it take till the 21st or 22nd century to have computers? Because, look, we're, we're on a timetable here, folks. You know, what about the people who in 1969 landed on the moon with computers with code written by Margaret Hamilton, you know, mm. who just banged out that code line by line. So uh, it's a lot to swallow. I, I don't mean to take it too seriously. I think the character journey is certainly much more interesting and important here. But um, yeah, that that was something that stuck in my craw a little bit. I mean, that, that's fair. And I don't think that it's not that you're not taking it too seriously. I don't think that they took it seriously enough in the story. I mean, when mm. When Starling said that I was responsible for the micro computer revolution, we didn't see it. <laughs> yeah. We certainly didn't see it on screen. I mean, I, I did make mention that the SETI computers in Rain's lab were a little bit more advanced looking. But when yeah. Starling says that without me, there would be no laptops, no internet, no barcode readers, and this is happening in real time in the world of 1996 when this story is taking place, there were. So yeah. it, it's kind of like, okay, tomorrow never dies. Okay. We're going to cross-reference James Bond Love it. here. Love it. Okay. Yeah. Jonathan Price's character is a mogul in charge of the most powerful media conglomerate in the world, and his entire premise for being a villain is to own more media. Yeah. But he's yeah. already the most powerful media mogul in the world. So, like, right. why are you doing this? What is your, you know, what is your reason? What's the impetus, you know, for your villainy? And that's why I'm asking this question about Starling. It doesn't look like he's really changed anything. Yeah. Right? Like, just, I mean, if people were walking around with, say, holographic dogs, you know, or computers that just didn't look quite like Mm -hmm. computers that they should, Mm -hmm. there should be part of the script saying, this isn't supposed to be here. My tricorders are looking at all this technology and it's, they're scanning these power systems that shouldn't exist. Yeah. In the 20th century. Yeah. Stuff like that. There you go. Then like, yes, absolutely. Okay. His transistors, his microchips, his power sources, all that kind of stuff all stem from Braxton's time ship. Yeah. But we get none of that, which means that everything he says is like, yeah, okay. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> We're right where we should be. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't look like you've really done much of anything yeah. aside from yeah. say you did, but. Mm, yeah. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I truly, truly. And that, that is a plot point is very important. I, like, I think that Henry Sterling as a character, like he's somebody that we can sort of get in this Star Trek, you, you know, parables writ large uh, kind of sci-fi story. He's kind of – I thought about Ralph Offenhaus in the neutral zone. Like you have ah. to have that, you know, you, you yeah, have yeah, to yeah. have the, uh, the cutthroat capitalist as the contrast, the more mm-hmm. high-minded Picard 
card, so you have to have that. And here you've got Starling versus Janeway, and she says, you know, does anything matter to you? He says, yeah, the betterment of mankind, which is a joke, of course, because he is just all about commercial products. I, I also thought a little bit, you know, it just kind of steal from the well a little bit more, Rasmussen in A Matter of Time. You know, that was the Matt Freer oh, character sure. mm-hmm. who was stealing tech uh, throughout time. And, and I, I do want to also to, – I don't really have like a point of discussion around this, but I, I think it's important to bring up as we discuss this episode. When we go to the desert, when we go to Arizona <laughs> and meet these folks, I, I remember seeing this episode a long time ago. If I didn't see it on first broadcast, I saw it relatively soon after. I think that those characters in 1996 must have seemed pretty extreme. Sure. And today, I'm not so sure that they do because they feel pretty right at home with a certain kind of character and point of view that you could find not only on TV and fictional stories, but in news stories all over the place. Mm -hmm. These are people who have been in headlines for the last couple of years and they've taken up a lot of our attention and a lot of our energy. And some of the lines that are in there, they're coming for us. And USS equals federal government. The federal government is the beast. Followed by there are two forces at work in the world, the drive toward collectivity and the drive toward individuality. And my heart sank Mm -hmm. because it was no longer a sci-fi story. This is the reality of a point of view that is unbending and violent and terrifying. And we have seen that violence and terror play out in our living rooms far more frequently than I ever thought that we would in 1996 as somebody watching a sci-fi show. And that makes me hurt seeing that in a show like this. I'm not going to call out anyone for inventing transparent aluminum early, but if they did, I can't help but notice they didn't use a ChronoWorks computer to do it. Deep breath, inhale, exhale. Because we have, uh, I think we've survived the entirety of uh, the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey of Futures End Parts 1 and 2. We have crossed centuries. We have crossed decades. We've covered a two-parter, which Mm -hmm. is difficult in its own right. But here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are. And and what we do here at the end of all of our mission logs is we take a look at the episode and uh, we have some of our, our, our final thoughts here. Especially, does the episode hold up? Both episodes, because we're doing this as kind of like a a singular study in the story. Does the episode hold up? And then we will see if that uh, this episode has any morals and meanings or messages that we've been able to mine uh, from this gargantuan story. I mean, it's it's a pretty heavy story. So yeah. uh, let's just jump right into it, John. What do you have for us? Well, I, I mean, I'll keep this short and sweet. I, I feel like you can't help but compare this to Star Trek for The Voyage Home, mm-hmm. which had come out 10 years prior and was up to that point the most successful Star Trek film. You know, think about it. Crew goes back in time, visits modern-day California. You have an 
ecological slash technological adventure story. I think I'm already kind of predisposed to like a story in that vein because I think it does certain things very well, which I already discussed in the previous segment, which is allowing the audience to reapproach our characters and use these new contemporary characters as a way to change our point of view on the heroes. It, it, it grounds them really well. And I think that's effective with somebody like Gillian Taylor. I think that's mm-hmm. effective with somebody like uh, Rain here. I think that uh, Star Trek does that well. In, in you saying this and bringing up these specific examples, mm-hmm. do you feel that this two-parter is more successful – in in tapping that nostalgic spirit of Star Trek than, say, Flashback was? Uh, Yes, yes, because just going back in time, I think, just sort of says to the audience, like, look, we remember this thing that you do, too. So Mm -hmm. we're going to do some gap filling, okay? okay? Yeah. But when you go back in time and you actually allow our characters to be different and you introduce new characters, and it's a very tricky thing to do, but introduce new characters who you can almost immediately step into line with. Like you get who they are. You get where they're coming from. And now your point of view of the familiar characters that you've had for two and a half years changes. That's great. I didn't feel that in flashback. Because I already knew who Tuvok was, and I already knew who Sulu was. And other than getting a good Sulu monologue about loyalty to your friends, well, I would expect him to say that anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it was a powerful moment. It was a great moment for George. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think this is much more innovative. So I'm much more on board with uh, telling a story like this, you know. So I feel like I'm going to like it anyway. But this episode also had me sort of playing ping pong in my head thinking this moment here is completely ridiculous. And then five minutes later, (laughs) this is so much fun and totally inspired at the same time. And that's the difficulty because, look, we're watching this with the benefit of – 30 years of hindsight. Well, almost 30 years of hindsight. And that, uh, obviously, the technology since then to now has changed. Our relationship with politics in the world has grown and changed and evolved over that time. There are just certain things that are harder to let go of. And you really do have to switch off that part of your brain when you're watching this. The premise is just a lot to swallow. All this tech came from the future, uh, and then somehow other people weren't just copying and building upon it anyway. Like, like e- even if you go with that, even you say that in 1969, Henry Starling got this thing, let's say it was a super advanced transistor. Okay, well, maybe that part wasn't supposed to happen, but there's also a lot of talented people in the world who will just keep building computers off of that. Here's <laughs> you your meme, folks. Starling tech the tech. Starling, Starling Tech the Tech. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So there are elements of the story that are hard to swallow, but the point of the story is not hard to swallow at all. That a greedy industrialist who sees himself as the hero will stop at nothing to have the upper hand. 
I also, I love seeing Los Angeles playing Los Angeles in any movie or TV show. That doesn't happen nearly as often as it should. And they picked a lot of great details here. And also, I got to hand it to them that this is an ambitious story, too, with all the location shooting. It's a two-parter. The use of recognizable guest stars. That's a tough thing to do in Star Trek because Star Trek is such a created world that when you have somebody drop in, you have to buy that they are part of that reality. If it's somebody who is super well-known, it's a bit more difficult to suspend your disbelief, but I think they did that very effectively here. So well done on that side too. I, I could sit here and pick this apart all day, but I can't help but love this episode. And I think I would also have a pretty easy time somewhere along the line, showing this to somebody who is new to Star Trek and saying, here's something that is pretty representative of some of the ideals of Star Trek, which we'll get into in a moment. But I want to hear your take on whether or not this holds up. I know that I know that our audience out there, they're not excited when you know we say yes and no about it, because I think they want to have a definitive, you know, does yeah. this hold up or doesn't yeah, hold up? And yeah. I don't think it's that simple with something like this because it's such a big project. It's such a big episode. But for me, it is a yes and no. Mm-hmm. And here are my yeses. Yes, like you said, John, there's a very, very definite Star Trek for the Voyage Home charm to this story. The mm-hmm. vibe is there. And, 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 I, and I say this lovingly and, and almost as a cautionary tale, nostalgia yeah. can only take you so far. Mm-hmm. Right? The story has, mm-hmm. still has to stand on its own. Yeah. Yes, this episode still holds up because it's a fun time travel romp. Again, you know, mm-hmm. very, you know, uh, it, it, it's very telltale of a Star Trek story. Uh, and it, it, it allows us to turn our brains off in a way. But again, Star Trek is time travel. It only takes you so far until your brain eventually turns back on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yes, also, um, I, was, I lived in Southern California for 20 years. And I was lost in, in the grandeur of seeing it as a backdrop, Santa yeah. Monica Pier, you know, uh, the, just downtown L.A., the Griffith Observatory. Yeah. All of that, you know, to especially Southern Californians. I mean, that's very important. You know, that's, yeah. that's, our, that's our backyard, you know, yeah. and, and, and many of us have chewed that dirt, you know, yeah. um, and, that, and that gives us a commonality. But here are where my no's come in. So no, it's like sometimes nostalgia isn't just enough anymore to lean on as a means to tell the story. Okay, so I've used this before in in other uh, mission logs where I refer to certain things as empty calories. This episode, this two-part, is an incredible feast of empty calories. Okay? (laughs) I mean, when I I turn my brain off, I enjoy it for what it is. When I turn my brain on and do what we do for mission log, I have to take a look at it critically. But critically... And I just want to remind everyone out there, critically does not mean unfair or judgmental. It just means that we're looking at the merits of the narrative and does it make sense structurally? And I think that this is where the episode breaks down for me. Forgive me for saying this because I know you're probably fans of this out there. But (laughs) for me, Starling does not make sense at all. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I've hinted at this earlier, but... For me, he's a paper tiger villain. He amounts to absolutely zero threat, except for except for the time ship at the end, mm-hmm. which he was eventually going to get to anyway. Any villain would have gotten to that situation anyway. Yeah, but he just 
doesn't exude the supervillain nature that we need in this character. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, mm. right? You know, so he just kind of stumbles into his villainy. He's not a villain. Yeah. Maybe that's the point. You know, that may be, that, that, that's an arguable point. But here's the thing, and please direct all the emails at me. Don't, don't, don't point them at John. <laughs> that's fine. I rarely, if ever, have ever said this about a guest actor on any of the episodes that we've covered with me being on Mission Log. But if I have to be honest, I don't think that Ed Begley was the right fit for Starling. Hmm. At all. Interesting. He took me out of the episode with almost every scene. See that by the way, this is very interesting because yeah. you know we the two parts were directed by uh, David Livingston and Cliff Bowl, respectively. David really wanted to have Ed Begley there, and I, I, I'm not sure as a director how much say he had in that. Cliff Bowl comes along and he's like, "Oh, they just handed me Ed Begley; he would have cast somebody else." So, and this is just there my opinion, you go. right? Yeah. This is just how I reacted to him. And I think that, I mean, I've loved all of Ed Begley's work prior to and since. Yeah. But this episode, I just don't get it. I just don't get him in the role. And maybe it's because I don't think that Starling again makes sense. Hmm. He needed to reach James Bond villain threat level, right, (laughs) to be engaging as a villain. You know, Hmm. just that over the top, impossible, you know, just, you know, egomaniacally driven character yeah and that wasn't him and i really think that if starling was cast differently and written just a little bit better he would have been the character that i needed to make this episode work but it all for me it all falls apart around starling and I wish it didn't, but it does. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. So come back to me with morals, meanings, messages. Uh, what, do you, what do you pick up here? Well, it's such a dense two-parter, you know, as a singular story. It doesn't – for me, it doesn't really kind of scream any particular moral meaning or message. Uh, I, I mean, if I had to kind of like look at something on the surface level and not digging too deep, I mean, there is something to be said about – if you want to be like a force of change for humankind, you know, there's a difference between like lucking into that kind of legacy versus hard work building that kind of legacy. But I think that we did touch on something that I, I wanted to maybe talk about a little bit more, and that's that Starling. And he had a choice. You know, he had this the divergent path in front of him. Mm-hmm. He had the choice and chose capitalism and greed over uh, altruism and you know how to benefit how to how to use the technology to benefit mankind. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's maybe somewhere in like the Star Trek DNA. That's what I think a person who is forced with that choice would make, you know, taking this opportunity, which is, you know, obviously something that was beyond him, you know, looking at this starship and saying, what do I do with this? And going towards the path of I can serve mankind in the best possible way by like what Edith Keeler said, you know, harnessing the atom, feeding the hungry masses of the world, being able to go out into space. You know, all of these things that humankind is supposed to do, and now I have the capacity to do it and the opportunity, but instead I go this other direction and making sure that my, my financial security, you know, is you know, embedded in the generations to come through being able to siphon out technology that feeds my stockholders to be able to float my, right. you know, my company, you know, into the, into the years and the generations ahead. But that's, 
maybe that is the meaning. Like maybe that is like if you have a choice, what would you do? If you have a choice to be able to affect the outcome of humankind, yeah. In in you know in, in total, what would you do? Yeah. Right? Is or is it beyond you? And I do think I do think that somewhere along the line he was going in the right direction. But Dunbar being the influential character that he is in this episode maybe steered him towards a different path. I don't know, but that's what I'd like to think. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just think that in the end, there's this tried and true trope of of Star Trek showing us these incredibly um, these incredibly different textures of the humanity that we want to become versus the humanity that we choose, right? And how slim is that difference when we actually have to make that choice for ourselves, right? Yeah. And maybe that, maybe that is the point of the episode. I don't know. Uh, enlighten me, John. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I think we're on a similar path here. I mean, look, look, this is an episode, two episodes with a lot of action, a lot of fun with our characters and heroes and villains who are drawn in pretty clear cut terms. Like we know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy here. And if there isn't maybe a distinct lesson there is definitely a contemplation of the ideas and ideals that make Star Trek's heroes, our heroes, and Star Trek's vision of the future very apparent. You know, it's so obvious who Starling is that if you were performed maybe better to your liking or, or uh, express that a little more to what you had in mind. But he's the bad guy who is in it for selfish gain. The good guys are the ones who work together. We have that in those very clear terms with the wealthy industrialist, the guy who is driven by money and power. But compare that also to what's happening in that basement in Arizona, that fight between collectivity and individuality. There is a version of this where, yeah, Starling had the opportunity to think in a collective way and share this technology in a collective way to make the world a better place for everyone. You got far more out of that Arizona story than I did. I love that. Oh, I I, I think it's fascinating and scary and all too real. And, and I, I hate that Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski were so prescient in, uh, in writing that stuff. Mm-hmm. But that, that, is the, that is the end game of that kind of thinking, of that that totally selfishly driven kind of thinking. The bad guys on Earth in the 20th century, fast forward to us in the 21st century, they're the ones who can't see past their prejudices and paranoia. The good guys are the ones who are open, eager, and curious about the universe around them. That's rain, and that's hopefully your average Star Trek fan watching the show. So if you ever need to boil down what makes Star Trek Star Trek, you'd be hard-pressed to find something that clear. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Warlord.
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Tune in next week for the further adventures of Mr. Leisure Suit, right here on this station. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 